Kat. And I'm Kurt, and you're listening to Kat and Kurt's TV Review. Welcome to episode 230, exactly like every other day of your life. This week we're discussing series 10, episode 3 of Doctor Who, Thin Ice, and season 4, episode 17 of Angel, Inside Out. As always, we suggest you watch the episodes before you listen to the podcast. Also, if you haven't done so already, you may want to listen to our first podcast to get an idea of our methodology. Okay. Uh, so Thin Ice, uh, we are not on it, um, thankfully. Um, though the ice does crack at the end of the Though episode, you never so know. I, I suppose. Yeah, I don't well, Maybe I am. Okay. <laughs> um, yeah, that's the worst. If you are on it and you don't actually know you're on it, then that would be bad. Um, yeah, I, so there is sort of a lot of plot to this episode, um, where they kind of run around and do things, which, you know, isn't unusual per se. Um, Mm -hmm. but like, yeah, maybe, um, let's just talk through like the situation and stuff and, and kind of do all the sort of plot stuff. I don't think it'll take us too long. Um, cause I don't know that like. Not the the plot's wholly unimportant, but I feel like definitely the bigger part of the discussion here is the discussions with Bill and the Doctor sort of as they're going through stuff and sort of, not that it's, uh, you know, disassociated from the plot or anything, but mm-hmm. just kind of in response to like the things that's going on, it's like we have these sort of little philosophical moments and questions mm-hmm. and discussions happening um, that I feel like are more interesting than the things yeah. that happen themselves. So we just kind of run through like what happens in the episode and then we can talk about like, mm-hmm. how do you feel about that? You know, kind of <laughs> stuff. Um, what are feelings? Yes. Uh, so yeah. So right uh, where we left off from the last episode is you know, what, 1814, Frost Fair. Um, so was, was it, is this like a big event? Like, I'm, I'm not familiar with the time period. Do you know anything about like, like, was this like a big thing that happened or like, were yeah. Frost Fairs just like something they did? Like, and it um, just happens to be 1814 or was that like a particularly good year for the Frost Fair? Or, it's you a know particularly anything? good year. Um. So really I, I think it's it's year. it's the last one. It is the last, you know. And um, oh, okay. This was definitely a thing. I haven't done a ton of research to know, like you know, a, a, you know, a lot of detail about it. Um, but this is definitely one of those. Let's pick some relatively obscure piece of history and kind of do a you know a a piece sort of set in that. Um, I mean, I know just anecdotally that there there was like a mini ice age in Britain um, in the sort of 19th century. So I'm sure that that was sort of behind it was. Um, mm. um, and I think it had something to do with the bridges, too, that they would slow down the water so that it was more likely to freeze because it wasn't rushing as fast. So I think that combined with colder than normal temperatures enabled the Thames to actually freeze over. 
um, which and nowadays I don't think it does. So it's sort of the, the circumstances of the time period created this. And then they would have like, you know, a festival on the ice as you do. Yeah. After, uh, I guess after London Bridge came down, there was just no, no going back to the Frost Fairs, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> um, Unfortunately. Yeah, okay. And, and try, I, so I guess I missed that part if they mentioned that in the episode that it was the last one, but uh, I think the doctor yeah. calls it the last great frost fair. Um, but uh, well, see, that's different. That's a different thing than the last one. So like, right, the last great one. There were some others, but they were kind of crappy. So. Right. Yeah. Um, um, it looks like right, or uh, or just that like all of them were great, and this is the last one. Like right. you could take it sort of either way, I guess. But right. Uh, um, anyway. uh, going based on Wikipedia, which we know how infallible that is, um, it looks like they go back to the 15th century. So um, up until oh, wow. 1814. So this is, they weren't every year, but every, you know, like five years or every couple decades, you know, if they had a good freeze, they would, they right. would have this, this fair. When, so um, when the ice supported it, Exactly. Maybe there were some years they tried to do it and some people died and, you know, mm -hmm. that didn't work out so well. But other years they, yeah. Yeah. That was bad. Um, anyway. Right. So. Right. So, yeah, so, so they're the playing process. around in some, in some fun little, you know, London sort of folk history here. Mm-hmm. Sure. Um, and it's, I mean obviously not the first story that we've had, you know, in London, but they always kind of go to different time periods and kind of show you what's, what's up. Right. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So, okay. So, well, and also, can I say, I can't think of any other example in new who anyway, where um, we do quite this time period, there's a lot of Victorian episodes, like how many Victorian episodes, sure. but like this kind of Regency period, like early, early, you know, pre-Victoria 19th century, I feel like isn't something they've um, specifically done before. So it gives it a slightly different feel than just another well, episode set in sort of, you know, spooky Victorian England or something. I mean... I guess it depends on how you're defining your your eras, first of all. But, like, Regency England is not nearly as long as Victorian England either. Like This is true, yes. <laughs> if, if we're talking, like, I mean, it's, like, a decade or so, right? Like, I mean, it's not even, like... Right. Yeah, and that... I'm, I'm not knocking the Victorian episodes, but... Um... Yeah, no, no, no. I'm just saying, like, there, yeah. there's probably just fewer events to, like, yeah. fewer notable events to revisit in that time period. Um, wonder if yeah, they'll ever I, do, I, like, an American Revolution <laughs> episode or something. Um, sure, maybe. You know, um, or I don't think we haven't, not in the new Who, we haven't had, like, Napoleon or anything. Like, the, there are a few things around that period, but that's not a that's not a date that the new show has really visited much mm. that I can think of. So, um, yeah. Cool. So, uh, yeah. When was, when was the, I mean, I know it's not London 
in England, but when was the one with the werewolves? Um, well, it's Victoria's old. So oh, okay. it yeah, has yeah. to be Sorry. sort of later. Yeah, it's later. Later 19th century, yeah. I I have such a bad memory, I forgot. That, like, yeah. Um, okay. So anyway, all of that to say, you're right. They don't do many in Regency England. You know, maybe, maybe in the extended, like, maybe there's like a, I don't know comic book or an audio book or something that has I'm like... sure there is. I'm I'm I can only I can only accurately speak for New Who. So um, that's the only one I can be sure, sure that I haven't missed anything. Um but yeah, no, I mean definitely uh a fun sort of period, I guess. And you get um I mean so Dickens was a little bit later, right? Mm-hmm. Like, when was he writing? Like, I mean, it was definitely um, Victorian, I know. But, like, was it early Victorian that he started? Or I don't I don't know his time like frame. Like, mid, early, mid-Victorian. Okay. Well. Uh, he was born 1812, died 1870. Okay. Well, all right. So he wasn't writing in the Regency period. But he was, no. you know. He was. Maybe remembered it as a young boy. He was two years <laughs> old here. Right, right. So, um. I, I was just thinking that, like, you know, there's a sort of Oliver Twist sort of feel to the yeah. uh, urchins, um, the the ice urchins. Like, can we call them street urchins? We almost never see them on the street. Sure. Um, the the ice urchins, I guess. Um, yeah. Here, but yeah, the, the sort of the has that Dickensish feels to it. The river, yeah. Um, that's, 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 uh, see now, I feel like that might have a different connotation, although I can't quite say that I know what it is. Um, anyway. Anyway. The urchins. So, yes, sure, there is a, um, an, an Oliver Twisty kind of feel to them. Yeah. Um, and you get, like, sort of the, you know, the things that they would be amused by at that point. Like, like there's an elephant there, which I'm sure is an exotic and uh, rarely seen creature, right? Mm-hmm. Um, they've got, like, the people doing various, you know, contortionist tricks and uh, other, like, sword swallowing and, like, all of those sorts of things that you associate with kind of mm-hmm. fairs and circuses and all of that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, otherwise it just seems like any other sort of like fair or market or, you know, whatever, <laughs> like, it's just like people mm-hmm. out there doing their thing and it's just on the river instead of like in the sure. street, I guess. Maybe, maybe that makes it, maybe that gives it a little more room. Like there's more room to do stuff because like, sure, you don't normally or, or just, have. Yeah. It's just the novelty I think of it's the same stuff we would do just on ice, you know, like, <laughs> right, right. Like, this is, um, you know, any other fair that we might have. But, yeah. like, if you can do it on the Thames, why wouldn't you? Um, right. There's entertainment and food and pickpockets. Like, right. you like find any that other any, any sort crowded of crowd. tourist destination. Yeah. Even today, that's um, true. Um, right. Right. So, uh, but, yeah, no. So, okay. So, that's the sort of situation. Um, and then you get the complication of... so. Um, I actually had the the kids kind of below and was had like the 
tiny and the lighted fish, but you actually don't find out about them until later, right? Because it's really mm-hmm. the kids that they that mm-hmm. they run into first. Um, mm-hmm. Sort of in the midst of enjoying the different novelties, I guess, of the fair. Um, they run into this girl who's looking for her dog and, you know, there's a discrepancy between the size of the leash and the size of the dog that she's describing has run away that the doctor picks up on. Um, what I kind of find funny about that scene is that like the doctor totally knows that they're pulling his leg, Mm -hmm. but he still gets his sonic screwdriver stolen. Like, Mm -hmm. like he still, he still loses, you know, his, his device. And, uh, even though he's sort of picking up on the fact that this is, uh, there's shenanigans going on. Right. Um, well, it's that, it's that kind of mix between being a bit wise about the ways of the world and, you know, like picking up on con artists when he sort of, you know, mm-hmm. he's an, he's enough of a con artist himself and a thief to kind of act like he knows, you know, about these sorts of things, but also that kind of somewhat trusting you know, naive bit of him that doesn't actually, like, keep an eye on where his screwdriver is. You know, like, you know, bo- sure. both are kind of true. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, so that sort of coupled with the the pie maker, or whatever you want to call it, I don't know what the guy's name is, mm-hmm. um, we're like, it's kind of funny because like it's like oh and another con man and you get this sense that like the doctor sort of like like the doctor's in there and he wants to like talk shop like oh so what's your best con you know like how do you con people like yeah i'm a good con artist too and and the guy's like trying to like save face or deny that like he cons people and and you know maybe has a trick coin or whatever um and like sort of gets annoyed by it. And then like the doctor ends up stealing three pies from him. Right. Um, right. And it's fun with the kids when he's pulling pies out of his hat and out of his pockets and this like. Right. Wizard, you know, this magician comes by and sort of hands out stolen goods. Right. Um, and I feel, right, and- I, I feel like a doof because I've seen this episode a couple of times and was not until this rewatch that I realized he uses the coin trick on Nardole at the end. <laughs> Which like oh, never occurred to me. I didn't even think of that. <laughs> Which it's like, oh my God. Oh, like the funny. whole thing the whole thing is teach me this coin trick and then at the end, oh Nardole, let's let's flip a coin to let's see coin. if the TARDIS <laughs> stays or goes. And um right. and it's of course it's a oh, Briggs coin. That's totally fine. I did. I didn't pick up on that. So that's. that's I didn't either. It's. It's very. I think they do it so sort of off the cuff and subtly that um, it it's very for for us at least very easy not to notice. So um, yeah. I think by that point you're not thinking about the coin anymore. So. Um, right. Anyway. Well. And, so anyway, and so, that just that cracked me up that I just noticed like, oh, well, of course he wants to flip a coin at the end because now he's learned all these, you know, these tricks. Yeah. Um, right, right. 
he's got new he's got new ways to sort of toy with Nardal. Yeah, uh, right. Right, and to convince Nardal to do what he wants while making right. Nardal think that he's this is a fair coin toss, like that. Oh, we actually have equal control in this situation. Like no, um, yeah. Yeah. So there's that. Even though he gets his screwdriver stolen and has to have the coin toss sort of taught to him, there's still that kind of swindler side of the doctor that isn't above learning these sorts of little, you know, tricks and like illusions and everything. Yeah. 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 Um, <laughs> that's funny. So, yeah. So, I mean, they they chase after the kids to get the sonic screwdriver back um only to discover like one of the kids uh spider mm-hmm. is that his name mm-hmm. um gets sucked into the ice by some weird swirly lights yeah. um although the doctor rescues his uh sonic screwdriver so Yes, he's the screwdriver, not the kid. <laughs> like he, he's happy about rescuing the screwdriver, right? Um, which kind of sets Bill off, and we can talk about their discussion yeah. on that later. Yeah. But, um, long story short, they find out from the girl who was running away, Kitty, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, that there's like a group, uh, a group of kids. They try to convince her at first, and she runs away, and then like she overhears them talking about the potential danger that's looming under the ice. Um, and so she takes them back to the like hovel or mm-hmm. whatever you want to call it, the shack where they're all, all the kids are sort of staying. Uh, all the, all the urchins are sort of, staying. there's no, there's no, uh, there's no Fagin character. So no. I guess, does that, does that make the doctor sort of a Fagin? <laughs> yeah. Character? Maybe. Maybe. Um, in there but yeah like there's no there's no one leading them or like directing them i guess i guess the guy with the tattoo who never gets a name right right do we ever find out his name i don't think so uh, i don't he's think just, so he's just the bad man with the tattoo on his left hand right right but um, even he's like not really i wouldn't even really I don't think no. he really qualifies as a as a Fagin, really. Um, well, and I I was just gonna say like he's the only one that like like he pays them to like do stuff, right? Right, From, like which is really Sutcliffe, like it, you know it's by proxy, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I mean we don't know because we don't hear like the precise command, but you can almost be like Sutcliffe just kind of tells him like, hey, get some kids to you know get people out on the ice to mm-hmm. you know, hand out some flyers and stuff. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so the kids are obviously like sort of scared, especially when they find out like what, ha- well, they don't really find out what happened. To, like they never really state what happened to spider. It's just kind of like, yeah, he's not. Right, they kind of sweep that under um, the rug. Yeah. And, but like, you know, they get, uh, they sort of get the information about the the guy and they so i guess like you were you the way you described it was they kind of like work up the chain right like they kind of they find out about the guy um they find out 
Well, they're sort of, they go off uh, on their little like scuba diving expedition mm-hmm. and discover what's under the ice, which is this creature mm-hmm. uh, that the doctor lady calls, la- lady, later calls tiny. <laughs> uh-huh. um, and that it sort of has these like helper fish mm-hmm. that attract and somehow like pull people under the ice to uh well to feed i guess yeah yeah i feel like that's the one thing that's the mechanism of that's never really no like the doctor says at one point like he like talks about the you know them evolving together like oh how Mm -hmm. do they evolve you know to like this point or whatever but there's not Yeah, it's not, like, real clear, like, about, like, exactly how they can pull people down through the ice and stuff. Or, like, why the whole, like, heals, (laughs) like, that quickly. Because then, like, you get later, you get, like, the pie man again, like, fishing. Mm -hmm. And, like, presumably presumably it's caught one of these things. But, like, his hole doesn't, like, immediately freeze back over. So there's definitely, it definitely seems like there, it's some mechanism of the fish that, like, Right. Reheals the ice and, you know, re ices over. Yeah. And they never. The whole. They never quite definitively say, are they alien and, and stuck here or are they completely natural? And it's just that there's only like the last of its kind in existence and that these other sort of, you know, attacher fish have sort of yeah. evolved alongside it. You know, I don't think it's not like it's the biggest deal or whatever. Well, but but the exactly what what is the relationship of the fish? Where do they come from? How do they sort of work? Is is not in, explained in any sort of detail. I you're you're right that they don't explicitly say like they don't ever come to a definitive thing. But I get the sense because like the doctor, not just in this episode, but like elsewhere throughout the series in various incarnations always seems to be able to tell when something is alien Mm. right like and in this case he's very kind of cagey and not sort of saying it definitely is an alien like even like even in this episode he's he says Sutcliffe is definitely human Right. right right he doesn't say that about tiny like either one way or the other sure and he sort of blows it out, but you know, what's the line like, oh, you know, alien, terrestrial, it's all the same thing. Like right. like to him that's right. not what matters. That's not the important um, thing. And I, I like the thematic like parallel of nothing in this episode being alien. You know, I think that might kind of strengthen like Sutcliffe's mm-hmm. humanity is the thing that's monstrous about him. And I think that and, and it's kind of all about like human exploitation both of like the natural world and also of other human beings and like you know but it's very much an earth story so i kind of like the idea that even the fish which are you know granted that they're exotic and that build has never heard of them before but if they are terrestrial fish that kind of only enhances that sort of thematic element Mm -hmm. 
um, like this is a story about, this isn't a story about aliens and humans interacting. This is a story about humans interacting with their own world, um, you know, and kind of mistreating it and exploiting it and everything. Sure, sure. Um, and and the doctor does say. Uh, so I found that that quote about the um, the sort of light fish things. Mm -hmm. uh, he says definitely not carnivores, which means you're cooperating with the creature, providing for it. What do you get in return? What did it take for you to to evolve into that? So that like the assumption there is that they did evolve. Mm -hmm. Like he's there's sort of no question that they evolved to help this fish. So at least or this creature. So it seems to me that at least the light fish are terrestrial. Mm -hmm. Like maybe the, maybe the big fish, the big thing creature, tiny, tiny could still be alien, mm -hmm. but it's sort of co-opting is the word the doctor uses, you know, uh, or cooperating. Sorry. Uh, I'm like, wait, no, I read that wrong. Um, cooperating. <laughs> Like they could still be just like we've seen humans cooperating with aliens before, mm -hmm. right? Like, like it could be that they were terrestrial, even if the creature itself is alien. Um, but I also like there's also that sort of idea of like, you know, the the ocean is still largely unexplored, and that there's yeah. still things down there that we don't even know about. You know, like it was only recently. I've just been enjoying Blue Planet too, and that's like very much what you come away from it with is like that's, we know that's a funny. fraction of yeah. Um, that's funny because like independently, I just was listening to NPR today on the ride home, and they were talking about Blue Planet. Like I think it was with the director, they had like an inter little interview with mm -hmm. you know, and, and yeah, and that's really interesting. Like that you know, okay, we've been to the moon and like we've sent satellites out into space and stuff. And in some respects, we know, not that we know everything about space or whatever, but there are certain aspects of like the moon and space and stuff that we know better than we know other aspects of our own planet, you know? Mm -hmm. um, so I kind of like that idea. And, and there's the whole like, you know, leviathan from like the bible or you know mm -hmm. from mythology like big sea creatures and stuff where like okay maybe they were just whales or you know whatever but maybe not maybe there are like right other creatures um things like the coelacanth that like they thought were extinct for you know millions of years and right nope, until turns it out, washes up on shore one day yeah yeah, yeah. Turns out, yeah, we just didn't look good enough for them, or or even like things that we knew existed, like um, like the giant squid. But like until like recently, like within the last few years, had never like actually captured on video and, mm -hmm. and never you know had any proof other than like carcasses, <laughs> you know right. that that these things were still sort of around. Um, mm -hmm. So anyway. Yeah. All that to say, not that that ever explained one minor, I mean, this is pretty minor, but like the one little thing that sort of made me um, cringe a little is at the end when it's sort of swimming away mm -hmm. and like, it's so big mm. and like 
you're looking at that and then you're looking at like the bridges that it supposedly like swims through like the arches and stuff of it and you're just kind of like i don't know i don't know like if it actually would fit through there based on the sure there might be a little problem of scale um anyway minor minor issue but uh all that to say that yeah so they go under the ice they find this thing and i mean it sort of belches out spider's little red hat right like along with a few other things i mean saturday night kids tv yeah right like (laughs) just to make sure we all get the connection here Yeah. Um, Just in case we thought we were going to find Spider alive somewhere. Right. Like maybe he's like in a block of ice and we can like, you know, sort of in a uh, Encino man, you know, melt him and like get him back. Um, No, that's not the case. Spider's gone. Um, (laughs) So. uh, So they learn about this man who's like sort of inviting people you know, getting kids to invite people out on the ice. And then they learn about this big creature that's like sucking people down, you know, through the ice or, you know, with the help of the light fishes, Mm -hmm. getting people, you know, down and feeding on them. Um, And also obviously they see the chains and sort of like the baleful, you know, single eye, like Mm -hmm. looking at them, like Mm -hmm. I'm trapped. Mm -hmm. Um, so then, like, the next step is to figure out, like, what all this means. Like, why, you know, why are these people going out? So they start looking for the guy with that tattoo. They get uh, a lead on this sort of dredging operation that's going mm-hmm. on 24-7, it sounds like. Mm-hmm. Um, I use that because I'm just, you know like the doctor i i'm you know trying to appeal to the kids don't they use that term 24 7 um yeah so they're they're uh they have got this dredging operation so they check that out um seems to be um far far down the uh sort of the the wharf there or the you know um whatever the 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 banks of the thames to the other end of the creature mm-hmm. um, right the other end right. we're, we're we're not explicitly told that these are excretions from the creature but it certainly seems like everything but told <laughs> yeah seems yeah. like that's a pretty you know good conclusion that we can come to a pretty logical conclusion right right um, all, all the way down to bill's no sh- and then yeah. it cuts out yeah right right uh So yeah, so uh, this substance excreted by the creature seems to uh, be very good at burning uh, to the point where like it can burn underwater um, mm-hmm. and it can uh, burn longer and hotter than coal and so uh, is being used in uh, like metalwork operation, yeah. uh, which is owned by none other than Lord Sutcliffe. Um, right. And presumably, we learn from him, you know, has been the source of like the Sutcliffe. I mean, we're not told this explicitly, but this is like a generational thing. Like he he says, it's always been there, like handed 
the the creature has always sort of been under the Thames and handed down from generation mm-hmm. to generation. Which so 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 I guess it, all of the frost fairs were. I, I was just going to say, like this. you you said, there was this mini ice age. Like maybe that's like is that like the implication that this uh, creature right. like has if it's like been sort going of going since fourteen something or other? Then for four hundred years or so, it's been. Uh, yeah like imprisoned by the Sutcliffe you know dynasty or maybe maybe it was just sort of down there for a while before anyone noticed and then like yeah well I mean we don't know the right at a certain point they started cashing in on yeah yeah we don't know the Sutcliffe family history per se but you know the the implication there is definitely that their fortune is sort of built on this uh, maintaining the the output of this trapped creature, um, which in order to do so means they need to feed it. Um, right. And so you get, uh, I mean, so the metaphor there being, of course, like you get, you have like the kids, right. Who are the street urchins and you have like sort of the workers who are maybe not the brightest, but like, you know, whatever, just, kind of out there and so the idea being that there's this sort of class mm-hmm. uh praying or or you know sacrifice sort of going on mm-hmm. um to build right. this fortune uh that Sutcliffe has yeah and I think it's another way in which the time period is important because in America, you say the Industrial Revolution and I think the turn of the 19th and 20th centuries. But in Britain, their kind of, quote, Industrial Revolution started earlier. Like, you know, the British Industrial Revolution is more set around this time period. So it's mm. kind of like, I feel like if this was an American episode, it would be like 1900. You would set this and you would set it in like a you know, a factory of some kind. Whereas like, this is kind of like the, the British version of like an industrialism Mm -hmm. story. Um, Yeah. And the kind of way that the people benefiting from this financially are kind of, so you were kind of talking before we started about how Sutcliffe doesn't actually do much in this episode. Um, which I kind of think is appropriate to his role that he, while the villain of the piece is sitting high and dry and comfortable from his sort of stately manor home, um, while you have, you know, sort of workers, these dredgers, and you've got, um, you know, kids, and then you've got the sort of, you know, random victims who are all the ones who are in the physical danger um so the 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 human cost of getting the fuel to make whatever it is that he's making or selling it Mm -hmm. or whatever that that physical cost doesn't touch him it sort of falls to the people at the bottom of the you know of this yeah. class pyramid, like you said. Yeah. Um, and so what's kind of interesting about that is um, up front when they first sort of uh, 
come out of the TARDIS at the beginning of the episode, um, Bill brings up slavery. And so I actually, when I first watched it, um, which I, I saw this as it was airing. So, you know, this was a year or whatever ago, right? Like, mm-hmm. I actually thought that that's where they were going to kind of go, like mm-hmm. to slavery and whatever. But I mean, it's kind of a different form of that, right? Like, I mean, if you think of like the sort of predatory, uh, you know, industrialist kind of idea of like, you know, there's all these people who are kind of in their situation and don't have an option. Like this isn't, you know, America land of opportunity, whether or not that actually is available to everyone or not. Like even like the idea of that isn't here, right? Like, it's just like you have the children who no matter how many things they steal and whatever are never going to really work themselves out of Mm -hmm. the situation they're in. Uh, more likely will just progressively get themselves into a worse situation as they get older Mm -hmm. and get caught and get sent to various institutions. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, The, the sort of, you know, the dredgers who are just sort of like the workhorse, you know, whatever people you get, I mean, you get the doctor's conversation with the, the main guy there, the sort of foreman or whatever you want to call him. And, you know, you get him thinking like, so he's just there doing his thing. And like the doctor sort of complimenting him, obviously, to get information out of him, not because he's necessarily, you know, intelligent or like good at his job per se. But um, you get him thinking like, oh, like maybe he can move up and like Sutcliffe has taken a notice in him and whatever. And and like, you know, that double entendre that the doctor gives him of yeah you know keep this up and you won't be working here long like Mm -hmm. which the guy clearly takes as sort of a compliment like thinking it seems that he'll be moved to some moved to some better position and we obviously know that that's not the case and not what the doctor means right um and yeah so like you kind of have all the and like the thugs who are like they might be under the employee of like Sutcliffe, but they're still no more than thugs, right? Like they're just right. kind of, you know, these uh, burly, you know, dock workers and whatever who were kind of hired on to ensure. I don't know. I, I guess I'm not really like, we're never really clear. Like, I guess he's just sort of a jack of all trades, the guy with the tattoo. Um, yeah, I guess we don't so. Really, yeah, I don't like, think we find really... out. Like he he coordinates the children into, you know, or pays them, you know, to like go hand out bills and stuff. But then he's also sort of providing personal security for Sutcliffe. So mm-hmm. maybe, maybe just kind of like a jack of all trades or whatever. Um, so all that to say, like, I did sort of think, remember thinking when I first saw this episode that like, maybe we were going to get into a little bit of like slavery and then it wasn't. And it wasn't until sort of the last time I was watching it that I realized like, Oh, there kind of is something you can see here, Mm -hmm. you know, related to slavery, even if it's not sort of the standard slave trade that we were thinking of. Um, Right. Like that's not its 
like direct subject that it's discussing but yeah i think it is kind of saying that these things are related you know the yeah. kind of systemic racism and you know is kind of inherently linked linked to any other kind of you know human domination of other humans you know whether well, it's based on race or class or you know social station or whatever right and and the whole you know by any other name like because there's still regardless of whether it's like you know actual slavery with like chains and you know you own the person kind of thing like there's still this idea of the 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 rich you know industrialist lord guy who clearly does not value human life in any sort of way and and is willing to just like kill people or at least let them die and even like like maybe he's not actively killing them but like it's more than just letting them die because he's like luring them to their deaths and then right. there's the whole plan to like blow up the ice so that i mean that would actually have been killing them although that plot sort of gets spoiled um by the right. doctor and bill and the kids so right uh, he kind of says it like well this keeps people out of coal mines which would just kill them anyway so i don't right. see how i'm really making things worse it's just this is just the way it is and you know I, like not he's not claiming to be saving lives but he's kind of saying like it's no better or worse than another situation yeah. they would have but then that's like you know a front for the way that he is actively contributing to the sure. the suffering and the deaths of people and he can kind of justify the morality of it by saying well these you know other people would die in other ways if i didn't do this so i mean i i did sort of get the impression that he was implying more people would die in the mines than are being killed. Sure. Here. But I mean, yeah. And maybe that's, true. he doesn't come right out and say that. So yeah. like you could interpret it different ways, but that was sort of the way I read that. Um, the other, you know, the other thing about that, I think is that, yeah, I mean, he is sort of like, it's sort of a bastardized or, or like, degenerate sort of utilitarianism right like mm -hmm. um which i mean john stuart mill was a bit before this right like i mean uh when was his when was his book published uh, oh no he came out actually it was after this so um like you kind of but but again it's like that sort of like utilitarian economics like well you know you know should we allow three people to die or one person to die well clearly we're gonna just let the one person die right like mm -hmm. like it's that sort of calculated morality if you want to call it that um which is the way i sort of took sutcliffe's argument um of like well you know either you know we have hundreds of people dying in mines you know or we have like a few dozen dying, you know, by being eaten by this, right. whatever, you know, he, I mean, he doesn't give numbers specifically, but that's kind of the way I took it. Yeah. Um, 
So anyway, just that sort of perverted, you know, philosophy mm-hmm. of that. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah. um, we talked a lot more about the situation in Sutcliffe than I wanted to do, but yeah, maybe well, in the last can... like 15, 16 minutes here, um, wanted to talk through. So I kind of broke down the topics um, that Bill and the doctor talk about as they're kind of going through this plot into uh, what I called the three D's, right? Uh, danger, dresses, and death. Um, so, I mean, the danger part, we may have even sort of talked about that because I feel like that's actually a lot of what the, well, the the slavery, like, like sort of the industrial slavery, if we want to call it that, um, like a big part of that is the danger, right? Like there's the, there's the, um, you know, the kids who are sort of like byproducts of, I hadn't thought of this before, but like, even just as we were talking, like thinking through, like, why are these kids uh, homeless and parentless and whatever? Like, mm-hmm. probably it's not unreasonable to think that maybe some of their parents died in their jobs, right? Like in the industrial work, like maybe their parents were miners or were factory workers or dredgers, you know, who mm-hmm. were sort of killed in the, or, you know, in the metaphor aspect of it, like maybe some of their parents were ones who were sucked through the ice by this creature mm-hmm. um, and eaten or whatever. Um, right. So like thinking of that, like from a, the danger aspect of it, like there's, it's not just that like, I mean, we don't know for sure which of these kids are, but you can kind of, you can definitely see that like that whole situation sort of sets up the possibility for for children like this if even if they themselves didn't have parents who were killed in those ways. Mm-hmm. Um, right, and it becomes like a self perpetuating sure. sort of thing of of the dangers of this city sort of create orphans who then are disadvantaged and unable to climb out of their situation. And so they're probably going to go on to have, if they even live it long enough to have kids, those kids, you know, might get sucked into the same situation or lose their parents young or whatever it is. So, um, and I think another part of like the danger aspect too, um, is I agree with what we were saying, obviously about there being a relationship between the like, you know, slave trade of African people and the kind of more symbolic slaveries of, you know, industrialization or whatever. But um, I do think it does a good job of emphasizing the particular danger for Bill, that it doesn't, yeah, yeah. it doesn't just dismiss the fact that, yes, there are other kinds of slavery. It's not like, the African slave trade was the only form of slavery in history, but the fact that she looks different puts a target on her in a way that isn't for other people. And I think that's something that Doctor Who hasn't always, well, Doctor Who doesn't always include people of color for the one thing, but like when it does, how much does it acknowledge that taking them into historical things is a different experience than taking 
Rose Tyler into, you know, a historical location. Um, and I think it, it course corrects that a little bit of, you know, having the doctor maybe give some acknowledgement to, to her fear in a way that he hasn't always. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, the classic kind of new who example is the doctor saying to Martha, just act like you own the place. Um, right. Which sounds that's like what I was thinking of. Right. Yeah. And, and I feel like this is a, a, a kind of gentle rebuke of that, of that sounds well and good, except that she looks different than you do. So it's a lot easier to act like you own the place when you look like David Tennant, you know, whereas if you're Martha Jones, like that sounds like a great plan, but is it as easy as he makes it sound? Um, whereas right. here, I think, I think the doctor takes her worry a, a little more seriously, even though they don't, like you said, that's not where the episode goes. It still acknowledges that that's a legitimate sort of fear for her. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, right. I mean, like Martha meeting Shakespeare and, you know, having him call her his dark lady, like, mm -hmm. you know, we can kind of laugh and say that's kind of cute, but like, yeah, there's definitely like, I mean, probably even more so than, the 19th century like you know the the late 16th early 17th century probably isn't such a great time mm -hmm. to look look different either um yeah but so, it also it also doesn't make it too big of a deal in that it also kind of shows that it's not like there weren't black people during this time. So as much as it is a dangerous place in some ways, in other ways, it's not as foreign as you might think. Um, sure. It reminds me of things like, you know, that Twitter account, um, like medieval POC or whatever it's called, kind of debunking hmm. this myth that there weren't, that everybody was white, you know, in the middle ages or in antiquity. And it's sort of like, that's just not the case. Obviously, you know, not everybody was white, but there were, it's not even like everybody in Europe was white. Like there are always immigrants and there are always people traveling around and moving between places. And, you know, we have a, a very skewed view of history because of slavery, but it's not like, that's the only lens through which we have to look at race in our history. Like there were, you know, you know, people of all colors in society at this time. So it sure. sort of, I think it does a good job of kind of both acknowledging the danger of her situation, but also not saying that that's the only thing that we have to be concerned about. Yep. Well, and so, what I was thinking about too was almost nobody says anything like now, I mean, it's possible maybe like everyone just sort of assumes that maybe she's the doctor's slave or servant or whatever, you know, cause they're kind of always together. Mm -hmm. um, so that's one possibility. We don't, but we don't get anyone saying that. Mm -hmm. Um, and no one even really like says anything, Comments. right? Right, right. Except 
Except for Sutcliffe. Except for Sutcliffe, yeah. Um, who, you know, takes her sitting down as like a huge offense and mm-hmm. whatever. And then, you know, clearly leads to the doctor punching him. Which, of course, right. is funny in context because like he just told her to be like charming and nice and yeah. not to spout off to this guy who they're trying to find out information from. Right, um, right. But... Yeah, like Sutcliffe is the like not only does he say something, but like sort of flies into a rage about it, right? Like, I mean, it's it's immediate, mm-hmm. uh, sort of, um, you know, vicious kind of response. I mean, uh, that he has to her. So, mm-hmm. um, just just the sight of her sitting down like sets him off like that. So you get like. You can get like maybe how angry and possibly destructive he could be towards people who really piss him off. <laughs> like mm-hmm. you right. know what I mean? Like if that's enough to just set him off to yelling and insulting her, then like what happens when someone really like sets him off? Right. Yeah. Um Right. Like what me what what happens when a worker makes a mistake that costs him money? Like, you know, like that somebody actually yeah. like does damage to his business. Right. Like she offends her mere sort of the presumption of her sort of sitting while other people stand is enough yeah. to sort of her, set him her, off. Her betters even. Right. right. Like that's, right. Uh, that's right. what he's going after there. Um, right. Right. So, yeah, no, I, I definitely. So from the personal danger to Bill. Yes, I totally agree. Um, that that's like another aspect of of what they do and that's i mean that's what she's concerned about initially too um which kind of leads us into the the second one right the the dresses because it i think part of it's not just that she looks different skin color wise although she she mentions that right the melatonin Mm -hmm. uh levels um but also i mean they're they're just dressed differently so Mm -hmm. uh Part of it, part of blending in means at least dressing similar to the times. Um, And so she's still learning, right? I mean, this is only our third episode with her. And again, that first episode is just kind of like hop in the TARDIS to escape the alien kind of thing. So it's Mm -hmm. not really an introduction, but, but she's still kind of learning like, oh, there's, there's a wardrobe and the TARDIS has dresses. Um, Kind of, kind of interesting. she says, uh, Taurus has dresses and likes a bit of trouble. I think I'm in low-key love with her, right? Like, there's there's this sort of, uh, you know, her smiling again when she's sort of faced with something new and unexpected, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, right, and the doctor responds, me too. Like, the you know, this kind of... Sure. The, the well, Bill's discovery... Yeah, but we already knew that about him. <laughs> we did. But Bill's discovery of the personality of the TARDIS and everything, the kind of mischief making aspect of it. Um, right. Yeah. Um, right. Right. So that, that's after the whole, like, you know, you don't steer the TARDIS, you reason with it. How unsuccessfully most of the time, right? Like this whole idea of, uh, yeah, that is more of relationship and there's some coaxing and probably some, you know, uh, what's the word um 
negotiations going on. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah. Uh, but yeah, I mean, this is like, you know, so the first, uh, or, or the last episode, I mean, the first episode again, like she just sort of jumps in wearing what she's wearing. The, the next episode, um, you know, with the smile people, it's like, eh, it's in the future. And there weren't any other people there anyway. <laughs> right. Like, so it doesn't really matter what she, I mean, there are at the end after they wake them up, but like what she's wearing isn't like that big of a deal as far as like, you know, what it matters. And also it's like humanity, like in space in the future, like they're probably used to like weird dress codes and right. that kind of thing. Um, this is a much more sort of pre- prejudicial era in a number of ways. And so mm-hmm. like, at least, at least not drawing attention, you know, to the way that you're dressed, you know, oh man, how do you think Sutcliffe would have reacted not only because she was sitting, but like maybe had bare arms or something. Right. Like, right. She had, that would yeah. have like really been bad. Yeah. yeah. Um, so yeah. Uh, right. Like her little uh, rainbow tank top probably wouldn't have gone over <laughs> right. quite so well. Right. Exactly. Um, so yeah, I mean the dresses. So the other thing I was wondering is like, When was when when uh when did we get announcement of the new doctor? Like it was after the season, right? Uh or, it was after the season. It was over the so, summer. Yeah. So I wonder, I mean not that we haven't seen like we know that the TARDIS had a wardrobe and we've seen and that it has all kinds of clothing, like mm-hmm. not you know, for men, women and and whatever else might happen to be riding along um but i wonder if like this sort of like focus on like the dresses and like that is sort of a hint Mm. of what's to come like because there's almost almost the way she says it is like does the doctor wear dresses (laughs) like like there's not like right and this is upon reflection like this isn't something i thought of at the time at all like it wasn't like oh the doctor has dresses, the next doctor is going to be a woman. Like, right. no, yeah, yeah. I wasn't, I wasn't thinking of it like that, certainly at the time, but um, sort of upon reflection, it's like, oh, I wonder if this is like them playing like, yeah, like we, we're going to, whether, whether they knew at that point who it was going to be or, or we're sort of in negotiations, like, yeah, maybe yeah. let's, let, let's throw out a reminder there that the TARDIS does have dresses and, and maybe it's not just the female companions who wear them all the time. You know, whether or not she knew anything, knowing Sarah Dollard, the writer, um, by reputation and Twitter and her episodes, I would feel very, you know, I'd feel pretty confident of saying that she at least meant it that way, you know, like that she Mm -hmm. would slip that in as, um, here's what I, what I would like to see happen, even if she didn't know for sure if it would anytime soon. Um, you know, she's definitely, uh, you know, her, her doctor who leans that direction. Let's put it that way. Um, sure. yeah, I had something else that I was gonna say along with that. And now I don't, Oh, I remember. Um, 
I want to talk about this more at the end because obviously we can't talk about, well, we won't, even at the end of the season, we won't really be able to talk too much about 13th Doctor stuff because we've only seen like a scene with her. But um, hmm. there is this ongoing, there is this ongoing trend, which I think tracks pretty well in the new series of new Doctors when they come along picking up things from the previous companion you know like the, there's something of the um you know like rose's young cockney thing sort of gets mirrored by tenant um and then amy's sort of grumpy scottish thing kind of gets mirrored by capaldi like you could kind of see it as like is there some sort of influence on, you know, I mean, we always know that the companions influence the doctor. Like we see that in the character development, but even as far as like the character details, like are they kind of, you know, imprinting, I guess, in a way on like a new doctor. Um, so I, I also wouldn't be surprised if that's part of it too, of like whether or not they do know who's going to be the next doctor of, Bill's personality starting to kind of become an important factor in how the doctor's going to change. Um, mm. So this sort of emphasis on, you know, kind of girl power and dresses and, you know, uh, girls that are into girls and like, let's just have, you know, girls all the time. That's kind of like the, you know, the way that Bill sort of rolls, um, you know, maybe that kind of starting to like little comments like that, paving the way for the doctor sort of getting in on that a little bit. Yeah. So I, I definitely could see at least Sarah Dollard and Stephen Moffat playing with that idea, even if Chris Chibnall hadn't officially sort of made up his mind or cast anybody yet. Um, so the last D was, of course, death. Um, and I mean, so, so, I mean, there's probably two main things that I want to cover here. Um, first is sort of Bill's inquisition, um, so to speak, of of the doctor. So this, uh, so when fighter gets sort of pulled down beneath the ice, Bill is understandably upset. Um, one at the event, but also by the doctor's sort of reaction to the event. Right. Um, mm -hmm. We learn that it's her first, the first time she has ever seen anyone killed. Um, Although, I mean, technically she doesn't see him killed. She just sees him pulled under the ice, and then presumably he's later killed. Mm -hmm. Maybe not Maybe not much later, but, you know, anyway. Right, and the um, doctor does point out that she's known people who have died, but she's sort of seeing this as different than that. Like, right. there, this is an actual person that she saw presumably be killed in front of her. And it's a kid sure. too, so that's sort and of it's a child, yeah, upsetting. 
And yeah. the doctor and, sort of does go for the screwdriver a little more than for the kid. <laughs> yeah, and he, I mean, he's happy about rescuing the screwdriver. Like, yeah. Or, or saving it or whatever. Um, so she, so, you know, she comes back at him and, and sort of, you know, he, he says that he cares, but that he has to move on. And so she says, well, if you care so much, come, tell me how many people you've seen die. I don't know. Okay, well, how many before you lost count? And that, and then that's where he says, I care, Bill, but I move on. And so um, she's obviously upset by that. Um, and he points out that, like, so he says, you know what happens if I don't move on? More people die. There are kids living rough near here. They may well be next on the menu. Do you want to help me? Do you want to stand here stamping your foot? Because let me tell you something. I'm 2,000 years old, and I have never had the time or the lug- for the luxury of outrage. Uh, which that last bit we can question of whether that's true. Like, he certainly has seemed very outraged at times, um, mm-hmm. including in this episode. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, that idea of the not sulking about it. Um, now, whether that's true or not, too, we can also debate. Um, maybe he has sulked a time or two that we've seen. Um, but that idea of, of, yeah, like, it does suck when someone dies, but there's still work to be done. There's still things to do. There's still people to rescue, potentially, mm-hmm. um, that he sort of I mean, this is this is his teacher moment, right? Like, what you know? Don't tell me how to think. Well, I'm your teacher. I tell you what to do. Like, that's my job. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, um, I didn't get that quote exactly right, but that's what he basically says, right? Or telling you, telling you things is what I do, is what he says. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, this is if this is Bill's first time, like this is this is a learning moment, right? Like this is a, a teaching you know, moment where we can see the doctor sort of, you know, explaining how he deals with things. So I guess, I mean, I guess the question is, I I think we get a hint later that Bill does sort of accept this because she, you know, there's the conversation she has with Kitty where like Kitty brings up like, Oh, well, you know, what do you do besides yell at him? And, um, they kind of, you know, Bill kind of says, well, you know, I've, I've moved on. We've, you know, we've gotten past that. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I don't, I don't know that I have uh, a ton of insight there, but just it, it feels very much like that's, I mean, as her first moment, as, you know, the doctor is her sort of teacher and like explaining how to handle death and, you know, grief and sort of all of that, at least from his perspective, mm-hmm. um, seems like a sort of momentous occasion in Bill's education there um, yeah. with the doctor. Yeah. In, in, under his tutelage, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and the kind of emphasis on the numbers of how many he's seen and and whatever, that reminds me of the kind of similar conversation in Day of the Doctor, you know, where it's 
the one who regrets and the one who forgets, you know, and that, you, you know, the, the Matt Smith doctor kind of doesn't remember how many, you know, kids were lost on Gallifrey and the, you know, the tenant doctor is sort of outraged by that, you know, like, I know how many, like I've counted, um, but so many hundreds of years later, that number has sort of receded into the background. Um, but I also, I feel like this is another step along the progression. Like, I don't get the sense that it's the, this isn't the man who forgets necessarily. This isn't the denial um, or the running away from the loss. It's more the, the acceptance phase of the, you know, Kubler-Ross stages of grief that the doctor's in here. Like he's, you know, uh, acknowledging of the loss, but also he's sort of realized the importance of not moving on to forget about it, but moving on to do something about it or try to prevent it. Mm. Although he sure. still can't, you also do get a sense though that he gives her these answers because he can't answer the question. Like he doesn't know the answer. Um, so, you know, there's also, there's also that, the fact that he, in terms of the sheer numbers of people he's seen killed and people he has killed, um, it's too many to count, you know? <laughs> um, or he doesn't yeah. even remember how many he counted before he lost count. Like that's, those numbers are so far in the background. Um, that he has to find other ways of, he can't convince Bill with the numbers that he cares. He has to find other ways of demonstrating, um, mm. which is, I guess, kind of where the big like speech comes in later that sort of impresses her about, you know, the value of a single human life. It's kind of like, that's the thing that really changes her mind to say he really does care about individual people more than mm -hmm. saying here are the exact statistics of all the, you know, the death, the deaths that I've witnessed. Yeah. Well, yeah. And so that was the second part where I wanted to go to. So I'm glad you kind of took us there. Cause that definitely, I mean, obviously that there's the tie back. I mean, he mentions the boy who died on the river, that boy's value is your value. Um, talking to Sutcliffe there. Um, who obviously does not think in those terms, right? That the boy and he are equals in any no. way, shape, or form. Um, and like, no, no. How many Sutcliffe, people does that boy employ? What kind of jobs is he creating? And like, what, where's his contribution to the world? That's sort of the way that Sutcliffe would frame it. Even before that, Sutcliffe's probably like, what boy? Like he what he wasn't he wasn't there didn't see it happen, and like I get the sense that there's probably all sorts of that, for lack of a better term, that sort of collateral damage, right? That mm -hmm. he just has no idea is even going on. Not that he would care if he knew about it, but just that he doesn't know about it, and it like clearly by his response doesn't seem to have any compunction about you know the fact that like some boy was killed on the ice and eaten yeah. by the creature under the river like 
yeah, so um, that speech does not move Sutcliffe. No. But also, I don't think it's for Sutcliffe. Like, sure. do you think, like, what to what extent do you think the doctor is actually saying all of that for Bill's sake rather mm. than Sutcliffe's? Because, like, I almost, yeah. I don't. It, right, it that speech was never to, going to convince Sutcliffe. So, yeah. Yeah, it would be hard to me, hard for me to think that the doctor expected to convince Sutcliffe right. of anything in the in that exchange. Um. Yeah. Right. I, I right. Uh, well, and it and it primes them for the later discussion about the back to the utilitarianism of putting the choice on Bill of tell me what to do because her concern is, well, if we let the fish go, it could kill way more people. So shouldn't we protect the greater number by being careful with letting free this one creature? Um, and then the doctors, mm -hmm. I mean, he leaves the decision with her, but his argument is kind of what's the good of, the society of many people, if it's built on the suffering of even just one person, that's not, mm. you know, a, a society that founds its safety and happiness on the subjugation of a life. Is that a, a thing that you want to preserve and defend? Um, which is kind of what tips the scales for her. So I think it does, even though I don't think she's the recipient of a lecture it is kind of a speech designed for her in that way, that it's sort of letting her know the value you place on a single life is sort of has larger implications for your society. Sure. So, yeah, I hadn't thought of that while watching that scene, but I think that makes sense that in the end, that speech is really kind of meant for her. Any any other thoughts about the doctor and Bill before we kind of No, I think we can kind Nardole? of wrap up and yeah. Um Nardole who puts coffee in his tea to give it flavor. Sure. Yeah, no, that's funny. Um we'll dig at the tea drinkers. Well and I took that not so much as a dig at the tea drinkers as like Nardal's sort of like I get the sense that sometimes he's just not like well tuned to well attuned to like human culture. Right. Right. Sure. Like he's he sort of he sort of gets you know, he sort of knows the trappings but doesn't quite understand how they all fit together, maybe mm -hmm. at times. Mm -hmm. Um at least that's how I took it. Not to say that um, Yeah. Maybe maybe it is a dig, uh, as well. Um, yeah, I don't. I mean, not much to say. We already talked a little bit about the doctor tricking him, um, in in the coin flip, which I did not pick up on was a callback to that uh, coin flip earlier. Um, the big thing, though, being that he loses, um, and so has to go down like. By losing, he has to leave the doctor alone. So I guess 
I guess that doesn't necessarily mean he has to go down to like check on the bolt, but like maybe he just goes down there because like that's the only place he can go to like not bug the doctor, sure. <laughs> right? Like if he's down there, then he won't like uh, accidentally maybe like nag or or whatever. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and while he's down there, he gets he hears knocking. Um, which sort of upsets him and and you know he he sort of yells back and says no one's going to open the door just cuz you're knocking uh which seems to cause the knocking to increase uh so that wasn't real successful um and then he goes on to say you know you know uh oh what what do you think you know what has he told you it, Meaning, one presumes the doctor, um, but then goes on to like reveal information, right? I know. He I was just thinking little, this. Yeah. He may have a little friend now, and yeah, he may be a little bit distracted. But I tell you something: I'm still here, and as long as I'm still here, you are going nowhere. Um. All right. So, I mean, obviously, we know who the who is behind mm-hmm. that. Um, I don't know if we do. We do we not? So. Do we do we give the spoiler? Can can, can can we can we mention it or not? Yeah. Like, all right. So spoiler alert in case for some reason somebody's listening to this and doesn't want to know. All right. Go for it. Spoiler alert. All right. So it's Missy. Mm-hmm. I.e. the master, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um. They had an opportunity there with the knocking. To knock to four times. Yes. <laughs> And I, I was listening so to it. So disappointing. I was listening to it this time through and, and thinking yeah. like, oh man, they really should have done that. Yeah. Um, even if just once. Like, I understand that could give it, but even if it was one time of like, chum, 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 you know? Like, yeah. Like it doesn't, it didn't have to be like the same rapid, like four time or whatever. Like right, right. you still could have like kind of disguised it a little bit, but just having done it four times mm-hmm. instead of like only three. Yeah. I feel like would have been such a better Couldn't better agree thing, more. Sort Couldn't of, agree uh, more. Easter egg or whatever you want to call it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. User kind of Um see also the fact that the next episode is called Knock Knock and has nothing to do with what's knocking in the vault. Um similarly, um lost so many opportunity in, in my in my opinion. Yeah. Uh. All right. Well, anyway, that's on a, that note, a slightly disappointing note in what I think is otherwise a good episode. Sure. Uh, this this one, I mean, um, wrapping up thin ice specifically. Yeah. So. Yeah. All right. Well, and then right. in doing so, we move on to Angel. Um, so yeah. 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 So. Wanted to pick up and kind of do the angel stuff first and then kind of go to what Cordy gets to. Um, I mean, we can kind of cover the beginning sort of quickly. There's, you know, the confrontation where we left off of, you know, they catch her um, and kind of basically confirm what we were 
speculating about that they sort of had suspicions that Cordy was involved, just sort of one being a slip of the tongue about, you know, using the phrase, my sweet boy, which is something that I didn't even remember that apparently the voice said several times to Angel. Um, well, yeah. He says to Angelus. To Angelus. Right. And when when she's like psychically talking to him. He says that she says it in his head. Mm-hmm. I wonder if that's necessarily when we hear it. I don't, I'd have to go back and look because I don't remember that either. Sure. I mean, I was presuming that I just forgot, but I guess we'd have to sort of fact check that. Yeah. I, just to say that, like, it's possible that, like, maybe there was other conversation going on that, like, the audience sure. isn't privy to right. or whatever. Like, right. But right. I don't, I don't know for sure. I'd have to go back and actually check, like, the transcripts right. or whatever. Right. But in any case, it's, so that slip plus a sort of um, a series of circumstantial evidence, as Wesley says, sort of point to Cordy acting suspiciously and being kind of, I think more than anything, her being sort of off on her own, you know, like mm-hmm. if somebody's going to be slipping off and doing all these, you know, sabotaging them in all these various ways, the fact that she was spending so much time sort of holed up in her room kind of gives the the impression that she would be, it would be easy for her to do that. Um, Mm -hmm. Whereas the others have been together just that much more. Um, So anyway, so they, they do suspect her and they set up the Lauren thing as a, you know, as, as bait and she takes it and gets caught. Um, She's quite smug. For someone who just got caught, <laughs> like, you know, or I say she, whatever the the character is or the entity is, um, kind of says a lot to Angel about how stupid they are and how she should have seen this coming and all this stuff. And it's like, yeah, but you didn't. So what does that say about how smart it actually is versus how smart it thinks it is? Um, sure. Um, but anyway, so they're kind of about, they're, you know, starting to confront her when Connor, of course, ever the hero shows up, um, to save the day. Um, and you know, freaking Connor comes in, ruins everything. Um, you know, what was the line about Wesley of, um, you can count on him to like take a bad situation and make it worse. I feel like Connor mm. has that talent as well. Um, so she jumps in and rescues Cordy and, and they run off. Um, so, um, so the rest of the episode from Angel's point of view is more trying to do all the figuring out of putting the puzzle pieces together and see what they missed and everything. Um, so, you know, he has Lauren going to his contacts. He has Wesley and Fred doing their research. Um, but it's not really getting them anywhere. Um, so he goes in search of Skip, um, who 
I forgot this too. Cordy must have mentioned at some point that he was her sort of spirit guide, right? Um, the one who led her, he didn't, well, seemingly he didn't lead her into the decision of taking the visions. Um, but he was more there as sort of the person to give counsel and use as a sounding board for this decision. Um, yeah, although, I mean, he's... It, I mean, in hindsight... If, if I remember, like, but... he does kind of, like, he doesn't push her or whatever necessarily, but he does... No, he does in fact, sort, like, he, he kind he, of he, discourages he definitely implies... her from it. Doesn't he kind of try to discourage her from it? Um, Like, from assuming, like, the visions and this other sort of destiny and responsibility, like... In hindsight, there's a, I feel like there's a hint of like reverse psychology to it of sure, manipulating yeah. her by telling her the opposite of what he, you know, like really wants yeah. her to do. Well, and so there's the question of retcon, right? Like maybe in hindsight, we can see that like, oh, he was using reverse psychology maybe he was totally sincere when the writers wrote that, you know, mm-hmm. originally. And so I think one of the things that sort of on a meta level we can think about in this episode is how much do we assume, and and this even going back to like other conversations we've had both on and off our podcast of like, how much can we assume that the writers had this planned out? And how far in advance mm-hmm. or like if they didn't like, does it all sort of work in the way that like it, that we're being retconned here and you know, what can we, what can we, can, can we see from that? Um, right. Yeah. Right. Right. Cause I mean, we were ta- so we've been talking for a few episodes about, um, recontextualizing the season, right? That like potentially Cordy hasn't been Cordy all season. Um, But this is kind of taking that implication further back and saying, I mean, we might as well just kind of skip to the part in our outline where we talk about this conversation about sort of choice and free will, because the, the grand claim that skip makes is that like literally everything that they've been through has all been sort of leading to this so like even things that he names things that don't even seem to have anything to do with this situation directly Mm -hmm. um like you know uh Lauren leaving Pylea and, you know, Wesley sleeping with Lila and all these things that you don't think of those as being like the linchpin, like they're important character notes for those characters, but are they essential pieces in what is in like Cordy's story? Like, I don't think of Wesley sleeping with Lila as like an essential ingredient in Cordy's character development um but the implication is sort of that in order to get to this point everything had to happen sort of exactly the way that it did 
Um, and so Gunn losing his sister and Fred, you know, opening the wrong book and getting sucked through a portal and like, presumably like their entire lives have been like, you can just keep going as far back as you want to of, well, they never would have done this if they hadn't done this first. So I guess you can keep going back and back and back as far as you want. Um, which, as soon as you do that, that kind of completely removes any element of free will for the characters. Mm -hmm. Right? Like, this is like, you know, all of their major defining moments are planned and manipulated and sort of constructed. The meta element, of course, being that that's true of all fictional characters, right? Right. <laughs> um, but on the other hand, I, we've also had discussions about how no writer knows everything before they do it. And in fact, like criticisms of stories that are, we've had this conversation really, you know, recently, but the criticism that, well, you didn't know where it was going. You made it up as you went along. That's sort of a always true to a certain extent and B doesn't really say anything about the quality of a story. Like that's a kind of valueless claim that like, yeah. To say you as a writer make it up, well, that may be true or false depending on the situation, but it doesn't inherently make it good or bad as a story or as a storytelling technique. Um, and is there really any story without some element of improv? Um, yeah. I don't believe that the writers have constructed all of angel or even or like going back even all of Buffy to get us to this point um so I think it would be silly if you did be, believe that that seems like an unlikely thing so mm -hmm. it's kind of interesting that kind of in this moment of you know our our ever-evolving story has led us to this point we're now going to make the claim that it's all been about this. Like everything we've ever done has been in service of this, you know, and I don't, I mean, maybe I'm taking the meta element a little too far, but I don't know. It's just an interesting kind of dynamic between the sort of fictional narrative and the, like the diegetic and the non-diegetic elements yep. of the story. Well, and so the other question becomes like, how reliable is Skip as an informer? And not yeah. not very, based on the fact that he's shown to be a manipulative liar in this episode. But but also maybe being manipulated, right? Mm. Like how we don't necessarily know um, what he really knows and like how much of this is him 
like he's trapped at this point in time, right? So like it's kind of in his best interest to make other people feel like they're not in control mm-hmm. and could potentially talk them into releasing him somehow or biding his time until like what actually happens is when, you know, the building shakes and some debris falls down and breaks the circle that's trapping him and he's able to get out. Like mm-hmm. how much of what he's, you know, uh, talking about is just a ploy to, you know, later to, to, to get him out somehow or other, either by waiting until he's able to escape on his own or, um, you know, through convincing one of them to like, let him go because maybe they're not really in control anyway. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's all just to say, like, even with his sort of claim that, you know, everything was manipulated. Like, it's clear that Cordy, who's sort of the vessel for this creature, at least until the very end, presumably, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, Maybe we see that Cordy isn't quite the all-knowing creature or being itself so like can we really can how much can we believe or should we believe skip when he says all of that like right like we've been manipulating everything to get right to this point like that's that's, maybe this is the the um, manipulation you know yeah what's there's sort of it's like that um oh what there's like an evolutionary term like for that right for like like people who believe that like all of like evolution and like history is you know orchestrated to like bring us like like we are now as humans like at the pinnacle of what mm. evolution is and it's like well you know i don't know maybe evolution's still going on and there'll be some species we evolve into or maybe we'll become irrelevant and you know something mm-hmm. else will take over or what like just because we're here now and we seem to be thinking that, you know, it's that sort of chronological snobbery, right? Is that the C.S. Mm-hmm. Lewis term of like the the point that we're in is like the best point of all time and space and existence. <laughs> like mm-hmm. maybe there's a bit of that going on with it. You know, maybe maybe it's not, it's not to say that like things weren't orchestrated. Certainly maybe they were, but maybe it's not quite as like, infallibly orchestrated as skip is leading us to believe and i guess like you can like i don't think there's a clear i think it's ambiguous like i think yeah you could believe skip and or you could not believe him and like either way would be okay like that's fine like Mm -hmm. i don't think it i don't think it's meant to be a clear one way or the other explanation and you can sort of make the argument either way right but yeah i agree with you that that the meta stuff is kind of interesting i mean i yeah certainly going back to but like even going back to the beginning of angel would be a stretch given how episodic like you know the the episodes were at that point like they Mm -hmm. were you know week to week procedural very straightforward like you didn't even get like a season arc until season two and then like from there it's like you know 
there wasn't even like any sniff of like Connor or like Cordy ascending or even like like she does get sort of the the visions and stuff, but it's not until you know Skip comes along later and gives her the demon stuff. And so the other thing is like um the actor who plays Skip, um mm-hmm. whose name I'm not remembering off the top of my head, but he also plays Pam's fiance Roy in the office. Um Oh, that guy, yeah, yeah. Uh said this was his favorite episode because he learns that Skip is actually evil and he likes that as a twist. And it's like, well, if he didn't know Skip was evil, like was he? <laughs> how well planned how well planned could it have been? <laughs> sure. You know, if he if he doesn't learn as the actor playing him until now, you know. It like or, they could right, right. Like, I mean, I guess they could have kept him in the dark before, but like, you know, what it would have been it would have been one thing to when we first meet Skip in the episode Billy, which they allude to here, right? Like he like he's like, Oh, the worst thing was like throwing the fight to you. But like you go back and look and you're like, I don't know, that was a pretty like intense fight and like Angel mm-hmm. seemed to get the upper hand and all of that. And as he does again this time, like mm-hmm. I don't think we need to necessarily believe that like at the time, like there was any indication on the sort of, on, you know, in the production side of things that Skip right. would actually turn out later to be evil and not actually a, you know, agent of the higher powers as he claimed to be at that point. Yeah. Um, yeah. Also the idea that like Wolfram and Hart, at that point, like, thought they were rescuing Billy from this, like, evil dimension. Or not evil dimension, but a but a punishment, you know, dimension that was secure, secured by the higher power suit. So, like, there's this whole, like, disconnect between, like, the two, like, ev- things that are supposedly evil not realizing each other is evil. Which, I suppose, like, that's not wholly, you know whatever cuz you do get the bees coming in and killing all the wolfram and heart people here like in this season so mm-hmm. okay like i mean you could see how two things that are evil could maybe fight each other and stuff like that but it just has a very different feel uh you know mm-hmm. when you go back and like watch those episodes like right you know without adding in the layer of like oh no we were just this, that was all a ruse and you know right whatever right yeah and that's kind of my feeling is um that skip perhaps is evil in this episode but that he wasn't back then um like at the time of filming and broadcast and everything um you know and maybe you can have fun with going back rewatching bringing that knowledge in and like you say, like you're saying like look for the little clues and inconsistency or whatever um but that's not that's something you bring back as a with the knowledge you have from the future that's not something that the first time viewer is sort of capable of you know it's not something you could guess because they're not really layering in I mean, I guess you could guess that he's evil, but like, it's not like they layered in lots of clues and 
sort of planted the seeds for that at the time. Right. Um, it doesn't seem that way anyway. Um, which again is not a criticism. I'm perfectly fine with people who make up their stories as they go along. Um, but it's funny to me to have the writers to take that and then in this moment declare, like, even if it's kind of tongue in cheek and knowing, even just the declaration of, oh, we have this master plan and every, like, even, you know, from the beginning when you saw Gunn's sister get killed, that was just setting off the domino effect uh, that was all going to lead us this moment. There's something kind of like, I don't know, not arrogant, but like a little bit like high and mighty about that idea that like, that they're claiming that like, this was all leading up to this moment. Um, and kind of like made sort of doubly funny by the fact that like, I feel like each week we're kind of pointing out the ways that the the Beastmaster is slightly incompetent, like not great at being a supervillain. So right. it's kind of more hilarious to then suggest that this whole show has been going according to the Beastmaster's plan. Like, I kind of want to be like, have you seen it? Like, it doesn't, its plans don't generally really go the way it wants to like yeah. well and it's not that it's not... not threatening but like it's it's there's definitely weaknesses within this particular bad guy and and it's certainly not omniscient or else it would have known that the whole Lorne thing was a trap right like i mean sure yeah right. like whatever whatever it might have had access to previously like even even if it had at one point like been able to manipulate a bunch of things into i mean clearly it it did manipulate something so i i i don't want to go the opposite way of like making the mistake to think that like nothing di was diegetically foreign. nothing least, had I any mean, foreknowledge and yeah yeah right. may, maybe from a retcon perspective we can say okay at the time like we didn't know that skip was evil but like within the context of the story we can say okay like like fine like I'm willing to believe that like Skip has always been evil and was right. playing a part. Like, head cannon accepted. That's and great. that's fine. Yeah. yeah. So so like I also think it's like feasible to say, you know, there's definitely uh you know an opportunity to to see how what it, this creature, the Beastmaster, whatever you want to call it, um manipulated at least some things because i mean at the very least like the cordy ascension and like impregnation and return like like that mm -hmm. all happened and so something had to happen now at what point did it like take over and like orchestrate things versus just like jumping on to events that were already happening like it's hard to say but yeah yes like it's somewhere between like the total control that skip sort of you know uh asserts that mm -hmm. it had versus some lesser you know like i don't want to go the other route of saying like no that didn't have any control and just kind of you know 
right. was able to like hitch a ride back with Cordy when she came back. Cause I don't think that's it either. Like, I right. think there's right. some middle level of activity yeah. that the being was right. able to manipulate. Yeah. Um, no. Yeah, and, to and get what it wanted within the narrative of the story. At the very least, I'm willing to concede that it seems to be that Cordy's ascension was never really about being a higher power, you know, and, and, and maybe that could be contradicted, but that's my feeling right now is that perhaps the visions themselves, but certainly the, the, her whole like ascension plot line was never really about her sort of earning a place in paradise with the powers that be, but was, you know, a trick to turn her into this vessel who could, who could then return and be the, the carrier for whatever it is that she's carrying. Um, and yeah. And Skip kind of, uh, you know, much as we love Cordy there, you know, there's some, you know, something funny about his line about, you know, did, Oh, Cordy went cause she's such a saint, please. Like, like kind of saying like, Oh, those of you who ever believed that Cordy could ascend to become a higher being, like you were silly to ever buy that in the first place. Um, which is kind of a funny line, although a bit disappointing from Cordy's point of view. Cause it's sort of like, I don't know. I got kind of into the idea that she, you know, sort of, seemingly vain shallow Cordy from the beginning of Buffy could sort of transcend you know to this higher level of being it's it's a little sad to think that that was like not true but maybe we need more of a definitive statement before we can like really decide about that. Um. Um, yeah, so, uh, yeah, just to call back to the, the Slayer, too. That's kind of a yeah. funny, like, mm -hmm. like no, nobody returns from, you know, uh, Eternal Bliss. Well, except right. there was this one Slayer, right. but, you know. Right. There's always an exception <laughs> to every rule. Yeah. Um, well, and it's Buffy, clearly. Yes, yeah, yeah. Right. Like, just that a funny uh, sort of callback. Yeah. Um, and yeah, and like, that apparently is still the only exception, because like, if we're sort of assuming that Cordy wasn't actually like a higher power in sort of a place of bliss, which we saw, right? Like, we saw her like, at the beginning of the season, like, or was it when was it? When she's like, yeah, bored. no, it wasn't last season because it was the end of the third season that she ascends. So it, yeah, it's like she's up there, like, "Hey guys, can you hear me? Like, this is boring. Like, yeah, that's because you're not a higher power, right? Right, like right. Like, I feel like at that point, obviously, like she still seems to be Cordy, right? Like, whatever right. the being is hasn't like, um, like they talk about 
it hitching a ride back with her. And so I guess the question is, like, maybe she was technically on a higher plane or whatever, but maybe didn't actually become a higher power. Like, she was just kind of put into stasis or whatever, mm-hmm. where she could, like, watch events and, and hold on. And then, uh, like, came back or was sent back. And, like, that's when this thing came back with her. Mm-hmm. Whether it's part of her or like controlling her or whatever you want to call it. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. So this kind of brings me to in the, in this theme of choices, Angel's choice, because the dilemma now is that she is the carrier. She's, you know, something hitched a ride with her, but it's still not really Cordy, right? It's not, she's not in control. Um, but she's in there. So the only way to defeat this thing is to kill it. But that means killing Cordy. Um, so Angel's in Buffy's position now, right? Like he's the, the, the tables have turned and he's now the one who has to decide whether or not to kill his beloved um, for the sake of the world. Um, seems like he's revving up to do it seems so um and is making a move to at the i mean he kind of talks as if he is um but even at the end it seems like he's about to go through with it um kind of raises his knife or whatever right like yeah which you know as the uh as the one who's been on the receiving end of things like that, <laughs> maybe there's a part of him that kind of just understands it's not personal. Like this is just sometimes you go evil and like, <laughs> you know, his loved ones have been willing to kill him when it was necessary. And like, this, you gotta yeah. do what you gotta what, do. You know what? What like, goes around comes around. Right. Right. Like, and, and it's not that he doesn't love Cordy, just like it wasn't, that Buffy didn't love Angel. Um, but when when you're the champion and the fate of the world hangs in the balance, you can't get sentimental about these things. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah. I mean, no. and to his credit, he kind of deliberately goes alone. He doesn't sort of say, you know, he doesn't take the team with him. He sort of you know, uh, deliberately says that if anybody's going to carry that burden, you know, he'll be the one to do it. Um, Mm -hmm. So. Yeah. Um, Um, Anything else about the angel skip sort of side of the story? No. No, I think I think we covered everything. Okay. Um, well, then I want to switch over to like what Cordy is actually doing in the episode, um, and like the Connor story and everything, um, which isn't super complicated. Um, you know, they yeah. go 
hiding. Um, and I mean, from a plot point of view, in a nutshell, it's it's about preparing the spell to release her baby. So it's like not just going to be a natural birth that's going to, right? Like, oh, okay. Sure. I'm, yeah, not yeah. Quite, I'm not quite clear whether she has to sort of do the ritual to give birth or whether she's like preemptively doing this to get it done more quickly because now Angel's on to her and she is running out of time. Like, is she sort of I, inducing I get, labor, I guess, is my question. I get the sense that it's the latter, but, like, we're not told. I mean, we don't really have an opportunity to know what it would be like if they hadn't, you know, if they hadn't done it earlier. Right. right? So, right. yeah, I, that... I get the sense that it's the latter there. Yeah. Um. I mean, the only that, thing we we are told is that it sounds like, in any case, it'll be dangerous to Cordy, like, to her body. Like, she, even, Angel might kill her, but even if he doesn't, she might die anyway, just from the trauma of this birthing process yeah. and everything. Right. Again, this is from Skip, though, right? Yes. Like, Right. Skip someone who says like her life force will be drained. And so Right. I mean, we even in this episode, just going back to him for a moment, um, even in this episode, he clearly he clearly um like makes a mistake himself, right? I mean, one, he gets beaten by Angel and dragged into this you know, into, into this dimension and gets trapped and all of that. But like, also he like gives up how to, you know, find Corby and like, like he says the name of the spell and the thing that they need to like perform the spell. And then he tries to backtrack and like, Oh no, no, I said this other spell, like they're completely mm -hmm. different things. So like, there's this whole, like, again, like how reliable is he? Like, do we believe him when he says, Cordy's life force will be completely drained or is this yeah you know something else going on here um so yeah just just again being aware that like skip might not mm -hmm. be the most knowledgeable or reliable mm -hmm. yeah um so To kind of like bring in Connor, you know, so she's getting him to sort of take care of everything as, you know, they have been doing. So like he finds them a place to stay. He's going to protect them. He's going to get the supplies, including an innocent virgin, you know, like getting everything sort of ready, right, for the big day. Um, there's something... I don't know if there's an element I, I'm that's not quite, I don't know if I'm not getting something or if it's just not really working for me or what. Um, Cordy's sort of speeches about moral relativism 
Um, and like the fact that Connor is hesitant, but basically goes along with them um, and does by the end, like fully go along with them. Like he, you know, lets her sort of kill the girl and do the spell. Um, even if he's conflicted about it, he, in the end, like she convinces him. Um, I find that a little hard to sort of accept. And I know that Connor's kind of a dumb teenager, but like, you know, the, the speech is about, there literally is no such thing about good, you know, no such thing as good and evil. And it's all just about you taking care of yourself and those people, you know, like all of our friends, like really just hate us and don't want us to be happy, whatever, like spin she puts on it. It's like so far away from Cordy, you know, like, is there, is there any relationship anymore between, you know, what this Cordy is saying versus the old Cordy that like, I find it a bit tough to not see like why Connor shouldn't be like resisting this more. Um, and I mean, and he is a little bit like he kind of wants to like, like even he's willing to give Angel the benefit of the doubt of like maybe Angelus was manipulating them to attack you and you know, like, Maybe it's not really his fault. And like, how can I kind of reason my way out of this? Like, there are some of those internal arguments, but like in the end, he decides to go along with her and sort of, I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, I agree. Okay. Um so I guess the arguments just don't seem particularly sophisticated. Um, beyond, well, so beyond, the, like the sort of ick factor of Cordy and Connor, like from the beginning, right? Yeah. Like mm -hmm. even just like okay, like we accept that yes, that is icky and like whatever. Right. Like, Put that to the you, side. You, putting that to the side, like I feel like the. What a big problem with like Connor's character, like the way he's written, like is just that, like, yeah, they don't ever give him sort of a. There's too much of a back and forth with like how they actually treat his character. Mm -hmm. Is he like, like if he's totally at like. Cordy's whim and whatever that's fine but I feel like on the one hand the the writers sort of acknowledge it like okay he is sort of he can think independently when he wants to or like when we want him to mm -hmm. <laughs> but right. like at other times he uh they totally write him in such a way uh that he he can't like he that he just can't think for himself that he doesn't think for himself and so like 
I just don't know that they ever give him like right, right, a real like book. clear point of view. Yeah, th- like they just like they just never really like commit to like one way or another of mm-hmm. him uh, acting, mm-hmm. and so it's I don't know. I just feel like they just right. do a really bad job of defining what his character is, and so he yeah. becomes sort of like this thing where do we want him to listen to Cordy this week? Okay, sure. Do we want him to sort of like be a part of the angel team this week? Okay, sure. Let's do that instead. Right. Um, Right. And Angel's line about Connor's confused again. It's like, okay, that's clever, but like, that's actually like a problem in the writing as well as a character flaw, you know? Yeah. Um, It's like we need Connor to like break in and save Cordy this week. So this week he's listening to her and yeah. Not being part of the team. And probably the Connor stuff is the bigger problem, but I do think that they could have mitigated that a bit if the Cordy stuff were better. Like if you if she had an argument that was somewhat convincing, you could get away with what's causing the confusion for Connor. But I think the fact that he is kind of wishy-washy, and then you hear what it is that she's saying, and it's like it's just so obviously wrong that it's even harder, I think, to really understand what it is that he's sort of torn by. Um, so, you know, it's, I think that's been true for a while, but it jumped out to me the most in this episode of like, yeah. Um, okay. Like, I'm getting a little bit my, you know, it's testing my willing suspension of disbelief a little bit. Um, yep. Yeah, no, I, I think they definitely, I just, I, I agree with you. Like, I, I think, I think overall Connor's character is just handled badly. And I think it's part of that unwillingness to just... Right, commit to, to commit a storyline. Yeah. 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 Right. Um, Darla shows up. Is there anything to kind of dig into there other than the kind of uh, or, or angel devil sort of? What's that? Oh, or does or, she? Or or does she? So, like, yeah, I right. think one of the questions here is 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 this Darla? Right. Which is, you know. A valid question, sure. Yeah, I mean, Connor seems to question that, and I think it that's okay. Like, yeah, can we can we say definitively this is her? What's interesting to me is that she shows up after Angel's whole, you know, sort of conversation about whether or not uh, the powers that be have done anything to help them, right? Like, mm-hmm. is is this an attempt? Like, did they hear that and be like, ah, oh, crap, we got to do something. All right. <laughs> like, fine. all right, like, he's on to us. Yeah. Let's send Darla's, you know, shade or an avatar that, like, can at least pretend to be her or whatever. Like, you know, uh there's maybe, yeah, like, I, I I, mean, 
I don't know that we ever get like definitively that she isn't Darla. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know that we ever definitively get that she is Darla either. So like, sure, I think that's just a question of like, yeah, is this an attempt by the powers to like stop whatever the evil is that's coming? If it is, it feels like a weak attempt. Mm. Like, I don't, I mean, I don't dislike seeing Darla again per se. And I do, it is kind of an interesting, you know, dynamic to have like her, sort of coming back to kind of chastise her son, right? Um, Just the thing that convinced Connor, more parental lecturing. That's a, that that usually works well with him. Yeah. Um, Right. And yeah, it's not particularly uh, effective. Um, even the moment at the end where she kind of becomes like the victim, like even that isn't enough to, you know, stop him from allowing Cordy to do this. Um, Right. So, yeah. So he's crossing the line from confused into like active participant in cold blooded murder. Um, you know, so it's the excuses of, oh, I didn't know what I was doing wrong is sort of a little bit starting to uh, fade away. Um, so they they sacrifice the girl. The, the spell starts. Uh, Angel arrives. He's about to kill Cordy when light sort of bursts out of her. Mm -hmm. Um, She kind of passes out. I don't think she dies, but she kind of like, you know, seems to go unconscious. So she's like, I'm I'm presuming Cordy is okay for the moment. Um, But the light turns into this like, I don't know octopusy kind of tentacled figure. Yeah. Kind of a um, weird like yeah. Cthulhu sort of shape. Um sure. And um and resolves itself into uh Zoe from Firefly. <laughs> yeah. Um, well I did I did mention not too long ago that Firefly has now run its course and right, like, and there's some seeing... unemployed actors on the market. Yeah, <laughs> looking for some... Whedon opportunities. Um, yeah, so and then he's sort of rushing at her and is sort of stops dead in his tracks by her, mm. you know, the the majesty and the beauty that is Gina Torres, as you would. Sure. Um, I and, would do that if I saw her. I mean, I, who wouldn't? So, yeah, and and so all the stuff that Cordy said about how they're going to feel differently when they see our beautiful baby—it's true. Yeah, <laughs> like he does yeah. feel different. He he's about to like chop her in half, and then sees that you know she's you know 
what she is and oh you're beautiful and then she's oh angel and that's the end like he's just completely distracted from his purpose um so there's yeah. there's some truth in what cordy predicted that the sight of the baby would sort of yeah change their minds I mean, and and she literally says maybe when they see how beautiful our baby is right. and then connor right. goes you think that would change how they feel and that's literally what you're oh my it's god you're beautiful what like yeah, is what right. angel says to her right so right. yeah maybe i mean I, I mean there's other like references to it but that's kind of the most blatant one yeah, yeah. um yeah right i mean so, yeah i mean but like okay what does that what does that mean the yeah the the sort of tentacle shape is this just a disguise that that is wearing um why is the baby like a fully grown <laughs> beautiful woman rather than like a baby um yeah is this all good question is this baby i mean clearly it's related but like is it even like the, you know is is the the beast master in this baby somehow like i wonder if cordy's even still possessed anymore sort of mm. you know like is it transferring from one human vessel to another i don't know these are my That's, sort of well so the implication the implication um again recognizing that this is coming from skip so yeah you know how much how many grains of salt can we take it with yeah um where sorry where is it uh there's a line about giving gun to itself right yeah so angel says being inside a human is what makes it vulnerable isn't it um that's why it had to stay hidden why it needed to create something stronger to pour itself into and then gun says wait so the big nasty inside of Cordy is going to give birth to itself. Right. And then, I thought I remembered that. So Skip Skip sort of well, Skip says circle of life. It's a beautiful thing. Sort of giving pass it credence to that idea. Right. So is this the Beastmaster? Like you know, yep. is this just another vessel for the the voice that's been sort of possessing Cordy. Yep. Um, right. That's the that's, idea. That's the idea. Okay. Then good. That's that was the idea that that was the impression that I had. Um. So. Yeah, that's where we leave it. Um. I don't know that I have anything to add at the moment, but. Um, is there anything that we didn't cover? No, I think that's it. Cool. So well, we'll have yeah. to pick up with uh, pick up with her next time then. Yep. That we will. And uh, knock knock with Doctor Who. But not four times. But not four times. Only twice. And. <sighs> Not in reference to anything we've discussed. No. No. All right. Well, yeah, we'll be back next week with uh, with both of those. Sounds good. See you then.